And good evening, everyone, on this gorgeous Sunday night in the land of enchantment, May 6th. Well, it's gorgeous here, but other places it's not quite so gorgeous. For instance, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, you know the drill, and you click on tonight's graphic, that little cute flying saucer with the family honing in on suburbia, and then you scroll down, and you're on the Radio with Pictures, scroll down to My Items, and the first item tonight is we're still looking at Hawaii, at this uh, outburst from Kilauea. There is an eruption, a major eruption going on, which has now destroyed something like 21 homes in one of the suburban neighborhoods not too far from the volcano. What developer would put a development next to a volcano? I mean, this is, you know, this is this reminds me of that episode many, many years ago in 1982 when El Nino was roaring through California, and CNN had a picture of Barbara Streisand standing in her um, living room on the Malibu coast. At least it, it used to be her living room because it was flooded with water, and she looks standing outside, and she looks up at the cliff. She says, why isn't it dry like it's up there? <clears throat> anyway, so if people do dumb things, like build their houses next to a volcano, I mean, you really feel for these people. And actually, I feel... Equally, if not more so, for the animals, because a lot of these people, 1,700 people now, have been forced to evacuate. And they fortunately let a few in this morning to pick up animals and vital papers and stuff like that. But the animals, you know, I mean, they've got shelters with something like 90 animals, including a goose and two ducks. Um, and it's so bizarre because one woman who, you know, deserves, I don't know what kind of an award... She left the house to take stuff to a storage facility. And then when she turned around to go back and get her animals, her four cats or whatever, they wouldn't let her back in. And she says, but they're like family. Now, wait a minute. If they're like family, you take them with you when you leave, when there's a volcano erupting in your backyard. I mean, is the planet really getting dumber and dumber and dumber? And don't answer because that's a rhetorical question. Tonight's show is going to be about saving us from dumbness because the only way we're going to get saved is if we, um, you know, ascend to space and bring in resources and send people to places where being smart the first time is really important. So tonight, my guests, Larry Davenport, and I are going to talk about something really kind of near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about creating anti-gravity in your, in your garage. And in you, later in the show, we're going to go with Radio with Pictures. We're going to actually look at some of these really interesting technological shots that Larry has provided. But right now, I want you to focus on item number two in my items. Because yesterday morning, the wee hours in California from Vandenberg, NASA launched the first Mars mission, unmanned Mars mission called InSight, it will take six months to get there, land on November 26th in a place called uh, Elysium, which is very, 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 very flat. And they will drill and put heat sensors down and put a seismometer down and basically measure the planet for the first time, deep interior, you know, shockwaves rattling around inside. They'll find cores and mantles and temperature profiles and be great if we had more than one station, but you can do a lot with just one station. And as an adjunct to this InSight mission, what NASA did on Saturday morning is basically save us a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of work. Because you've heard me mention on this show many times something called a CubeSat, which is basically a low-cost modular spacecraft that has now been designed by the industry, NASA and other major contractors. And NASA will actually give you help in creating a, a, a mission, a profile, a payload for a CubeSat. And they come in multiples. You can have one CubeSat or two or three or four if you want bigger volume. You know, you need more power. You need more, you know, radio. You need more instruments, whatever. And these things have been set up as piggyback on launches. I mean, I think Musk has launched some. The Air Force has launched some. NASA, of course, launches a lot of them. And some of them they send up to be launched from the space station. And there's great video. Just kind of Google, you know, CubeSat video and you'll get all kinds of cool deployment videos of these things. This is the way that space has been quietly democratized 
a subject we're going to talk about at great length tonight, uh, over the years, over the last decade or so. And NASA's helping. I mean, they have a whole office set up now to help like universities or schools, high schools do a lot of this, um, you know, non-GOs, non-governmental organizations, foundations. And we're looking, you know, the Enterprise Mission is looking at building, funding and building a CubeSat to put into space the thing that Larry is going to build in his garage just for us with a little help from his friends. And we're going to get to all that tonight. So let me, let me introduce this mysterious Larry. Larry is what you would call a citizen scientist slash citizen engineer because he's more in the engineering hands-on stuff than he is in the science theoretical stuff, obviously. He was born in, in 1952 in a little West Texas town of Midland. Larry graduated from Bridgeport, Texas in 1971, and after working for a while, he landed a job at Amarillo Copper Refinery in 1975. He worked there in production at the production end of the refinery, and then he moved into maintenance. And it was while working in maintenance at the educational program that he furthered his education at Amarillo College in the late 70s in maintenance technology and, this is important, drafting. How do you create a design of anything on paper? Larry later went back to school and studied electrical and instrumentation technology. He became interested in the work of Nikola Tesla in the mid to late 70s and in ion propulsion technology and the related thing kind of kind of anti-gravity at about the same time. He said, quote, I used to wonder if there was a way to overcome gravity, how you would do it. I mean, I looked into inertial drives and electrostatic systems, and I concluded that gravity was somehow related to electricity. It was from this assumption that Larry approached anti-gravity research. And during the early 80s, he became fascinated by a guy named T. Townsend Brown and his research. After the release of William Moore's the Philadelphia Experiment, there became a resurgence in T. Townsend Brown's work, the advent of stealth technology, and then a book by a mutual friend of ours, Paul LaViolette, Subquantum Kinetics, mentioned the possible use of electrogravitics in the B-2 stealth bomber. I mean, I remember that's the first place I saw someone, Paul, connect these two, and it was kind of like, whoa. This stimulated the public's interest in this new science. Now, it was in 1994 that Larry had a break, a breakthrough in his research. He was able to build a small working version of Townsend Brown's electrical apparatus from the U.S. patent number 2949550. Repeat that, patent number 2949550. Larry then spent several years lecturing on Brown's apparatus, building several improved versions, Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, of the, of the device until about 19, uh, 19, about 2005. He will return to the lecture circuit with an updated set of research on Townsend Brown this year at the upcoming Integrity Research slash Tesla Tech Conference here in August in Albuquerque, where... Tom Malone has invited me to present some of the hyperdimensional physics measurements we've done, which are a kith and kin of anti-gravity and anti-inertia. Larry will be doing a talk on the Brown Fan Jet Generator, U.S. patent number 3,022430, a later patent of T. Townsend Brown. And this, well, we're going to talk about what it's for, because you're going to wonder what in the world is a flame fan generator doing connected to anti-gravity. To be discussed in the next three hours. So without further ado, Mr. Davenport, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Well, this is going to be a a lot of... It's been on a radio station. Say again? It's been a while since I've been on a radio station. No, it's like riding a bike and doing those other things. You never forget. Mm-hmm. Once you've done it, you never forget. So let's see. Where should we dive in? Well, I guess I want to dive into where you discovered this very interesting, totally crazy, musk-like person in the early part of the 20th century, T. Townsend Brown. 
What got you off on T. Townsend Brown, given what you were doing at the time? I remember T. Townsend Brown, believe it or not, all the way back in early 1959 in our elementary schools. We used to get a science magazine that was for the school kids back then, and it mentioned Townsend Brown's name in it. Whoa, 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 whoa. At you're, that time, you're, he, Larry, you're kidding. Back in no, 1959? 1959. I actually found a copy of that book years later and sure enough because i remembered it and i read it and it did mention his name he was doing the electrogravity experiments in the 50s and hmm. that was prior to the launching of us going into space the space race was initially a launch by john kennedy president kennedy but that his name had he'd been mentioned as building an ion motor. And of course, being that young, I didn't quite understand what an ion motor was, mm. but his name was mentioned in it. I'm astonished because he's completely expunged from history. Like when you trace the history of research into gravity and gravity control and all that, in the in the late fifties, early sixties is when like I think sixty five is the last mention in in a magazine called missiles and rockets after that it goes completely black goes completely dark and t townsend brown like nikola tesla and a few other major 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 shapers of our history completely disappears like they lived in the soviet union and they were you know written out of history like the soviets used to do cut and paste with actual photographs where someone was in one day and the next day it was like you know uh, uh you know alexander who so back in 59, you heard of T-Towns. How, what, what, what grade level were you in? I was in about the second grade then. Oh, my God. I remember that. What a memory. I mean, this was just prior to the election, and Eisenhower was still in office. Oh, my. Okay, so you heard of Brown. When was, when was your next contact? In other words, did you remember when you got really interested that, oh, I remember this guy from from school the next contact believe it or not was about the third or fourth grade when they built the first ion satellite his name was brought up again but like you said his name began to fade it was there was a newspaper article and i want to think i want to say in los angeles and that might not be the los angeles times or something in 1972 and that famous picture where I think if you read Stan Dale's book, he's got a picture of him. He was older then. They interviewed him then. And then it seems to me that just prior to his death, and this came after William Moore's release of the book, that they interviewed him again. Of course, back in 1984, he was working just prior to his death on rare earths and minerals. Mm. And there was, if, if you remember correctly, I think there was some of these rare earths when the sun would hit them, they'd lose weight. Yeah. He was also working on something called rock electricity and he built yes. gadgets like big wheels immersed in oil that floated that had neutral buoyancy and as the sun progressed, you know, the earth rotates and the sun goes from the east to the west, he was tracking invisible fields, not electromagnetic, but something else that now I know is called the ether, the torsion field, the orgone field. You know, it's all the same field. And he went from his gravity stuff into figuring out that the cosmos itself is streaming with energy. And he built a detector, this really amazing detector. Uh, immersed in oil so it would float, you know, frictionlessly to track the alignments between celestial bodies of this physics, just like we've been looking at with the Acutron. I'm not familiar, honestly, I'm not familiar with that part of the research, I, but this that's new to me right there. Well, you, 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 you know, always learn something new about Townsend Brown. Exactly, because he was like Musk 
before Musk was Musk. I mean, he was the multi-genius level guy that had his hand in so many pies and started so many fields. And again, it's bizarre that he's just disappeared, been written out of history because he really should have a major, major documentary on this, this genius. He was an obvious genius. And, you know, the thing that I'm most interested in of all the stuff that we talked about with him is the, is the device which he created that actually moves without being a rocket. It's self-propelled. It's like a bootstrap. It pulls itself up through space through its own internal dynamics when you hit it with electricity. That's his real ultimate, I think, claim to fame. And that's the device that we're going to talk about quite a bit tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, you started out looking at Townsend Brown, and I, I take it that this thing which which he called a gravitator, you know, he coined terms a lot. A gravitator, that's the thing that yes. grabbed you. You there? Yeah, I said that's the thing, the gravitator that really got your attention? Yes, it did. Uh, the, the disc that he built back in the 1956, in the 50s that he tested, was the thing that really got me interested. And of course, later on, or prior to that time, he had done, he had built gravitators, and his first one was back in 1928, when he he actually built capacitor. It was a, a I call it a linear capacitor. Yeah. Okay. For folks that, that time, aren't, hang on, hang on, Larry. For folks that aren't electrical engineers, okay. describe what a capacitor is and what Brown did with it to turn it into a space drive. What Brown did was the early capacitors. He built them in a, like a series capacitor. He put plates and then he put insulation back in his day. It was called, uh, he used empire cloth, hmm. empire cloth. I don't know if people are, you probably remember this. A lot of the wire was had a cloth. Type oh of my wire, gosh! Yes, yes, it, 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 it was literally a wo- it was a woven cloth. It wasn't rubber. It was a woven, very fine woven cloth around all the wires. And and they had and they had stripes on and they had colors and they were you know to designate you know positive, negative, that kind of thing. But it it was cloth wrapped around copper. Yes. Yes. That's what he used in his early capacitors. He put these sheets of cloth, and then he, of course, he covered them with paraffin. And he, this cloth was covered. What it was, it was supposed to be ox, oxidized mineral oil, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And then you, it was covered with varnish, and he had layers of this cloth in between plates. Originally, it was lead, hmm. but in the later patent, he used aluminum. Hmm. Aluminum plates, and they were about they were pressed together. I'm going to say about an eighth to a quarter of an inch thick, and then on one end you had a negative charge, and then on the very opposite end. You had a positive charge, and it had a slight gap in it, uh, what would be a spark gap, to cause the voltage to drop a little bit, so you'd have a little bit higher voltage coming in than going out. Okay. And this was supposed to make it move. But the thing, unique thing about it, I've been experimenting here just recently with layers of just aluminum and polyesterline and then put cotton in between them. I haven't had the success he did, but one thing I did notice when you charge it up with a high voltage source around 50,000 volts, it does slightly move, but it takes about a second to two seconds for it to build a complete charge through these, through this capacitor that he made. 
Now, do you know that from duplicating what he did or from reading what he did? This is just from doing it. Oh. I tried it with my high-voltage power source here a few weeks so ago. So you mean there still is a supplier of Empire cloth before they cut it into the sleeves that go over wires as insulation or you used to? They don't do it anymore. There is in India is the only place I could oh, – and I didn't my. order it. They wanted to so, – and I, I'm assuming they said it was electrical – it was for electrical wiring and mm-hmm. insulation. But that's the only country that I've found that still sells it. My gosh. What I used was, I used polyester, and then I put a piece of paper behind that, and then I put cotton, and I mixed a little bit of, believe it or not, uh, your... Your dryer, your the uh, the cotton in there, the cloth, and bits and pieces of lint of all things. Well, I mean, you mean lint lint from your dryer together. Lint from your dryer. Oh my lint, God. I found out is a is a it it actually absorbs some of your static electricity. And when I turned this on, it, it took I'm going to say about a second to two seconds for the capacitor to charge up and then it just slightly moved now i did not have this sealed in on the outside with paraffin or he used bakelite bakelite's an old type of plastic that they used in the old days remember it well remember the smell well when it you know the the handles of of frying pans (laughs) over the burner bakelite there's nothing like a bakelite smell in the morning (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so if you go to an old, old house, you know, and you pull wires out of the wall, you snip off a little of that, that uh, you know, insulation, you can measure the electrical resistance, you know, because it's meant, meant to be a shield, it's meant to be an insulator. I thought what you would do if you couldn't find that original insulation material, you would make something that's close. It sounds to me like you may have created something that's quite a bit different than what Brown did originally. Including the lint, and it will have very different electric characteristics. I'll just characteristics. tell you that. Yes, I, I did. I just this was a, an experiment that I did try the lint and the cotton mixed together. I even toward the end used what ceramic fiber on the last one to see if that would work. I don't know if you know what ceramic fiber is. It's used in your metal casting industry. As an insulator, it looks like cotton, but the melting temperature is 3,200 degrees. Oh, right. That's the difference. Pretty up there. We used it a lot in the refineries when I worked at the copper refinery, so that, I was very familiar with it. Okay. So you can you build a, a series of these gadgets, which look like what? Bricks, where you layer. It's like an Oreo sandwich that goes on for a while, and it's longer than it is wide. Yes, I've I've since built some more. I, I just finished them last week, and they look like little bricks. I have 24 plates in each one. I have not tested these out yet because I just literally finished it the, when you called me this <laughs> week to be on the show. So okay. I heard it. I finished it, and I sealed them in paraffin. These are heavy. They weigh about three pounds a piece. Okay. But I do have a stand that I'm going to set them on, and when I get the time, I'm going to turn them on and see what they do. Now, are they all the same, or are they different? These two are the same. They're the same. They're made the same way. I used one sheet of the polyesterine or polyester, a piece of paper next, then I put cotton in between them, and then I put another piece of paper, and then I put the aluminum, little piece of aluminum, then another sheet of plastic. Each one is made that way. And so you're I basically together. You're you're creating a very high, what they call high K, meaning it will store a lot of charge capacitor. Right. And then when you That's discharge it. What Brown found out is that that moment of discharge, where it sparks, where it releases that current stored in the brick, 
the damn thing would move. Right. And according to any physics we know, that's impossible. You know, Newton, outside force, you know, that kind of thing, action, reaction. So why does a brick sitting, basically he put these things on, on strings or wires so they were suspended like a pendulum. And when he would, you know, discharge them, they wanted to move. I mean, did that strike you? Well, the first time you saw that, it was, was, what was, what would you feel? Because that's against every thing of physics we've ever been taught. You look at it, you look at a brick, and I see the pictures, and this is what I saw in the patent 300-311, the British patent, the first, the one that he had the drawings in. And you look at that, and you say, that can't work. <laughs> That's just what you think. <laughs> that can't work. And yet it did. He actually went to the point of putting one in a mineral oil container and mineral oil, a real filtered mineral oil is a strong dielectric. Meaning, it, meaning, meaning hang on, that, hang on, hang on for folks that have taken physics or electric, whatever. A strong dielectric is a, is a material that does not really support an electric current going through it. It's a really, really, really good insulator. A super insulator, actually. Yes. And he, he put this in a tank of oil and I think the main reason he did that was to show that it was not ion wind. And that's what I think he was the reason he did that. And he turned it on and it would move in the oil. Okay. And these wires we, he had. We probably have to describe to people what an ion wind is because in the, in the 1990s, a whole bunch of people, including an old friend of mine, Tim Ventura, built gadgets called lifters in a kind of right. a – People thought they were mimicking T. Townsend Brown's experiments, and in fact, their predominant effect was because of an ion wind. And so, tell people how an ion wind would this do. David, hold it there because we're at the uh, bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Larry Davenport, who is your garage mechanics, garage mechanics, garage engineer slash scientist, because he has created some of the most astonishing. Uh, technology based on T. Townsend Brown's uh, efforts to do something similar back in the 1920s. And he has succeeded in, I mean, he's talking about in the last half hour, the kind of step-by-step -step process that he went through to, 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 to kind of replicate what is going on. Well, there is more to come. There's a lot more to come. So I'll tell you what, let us uh, take a look at the time. We are coming up on the bottom of the hour, as I said. And that's a good note to kind of uh, establish a theme for the evening. So let's see if we can do something this way. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Would you like to ride in my beautiful would you like to ride in my You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen 
so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you as you're listening the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Sunday night, May 6th, to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Larry Davenport, and we're talking anti-gravity. Okay, Larry, let's dive back into this. So what Brown discovered in the 1920s, and we might want to go into that story because what he discovered was really serendipitous, totally by accident. So, uh, yeah, let's start there. How did he trip over the biggest secret of the universe, which is you don't need rockets to get off the planet in a totally, totally, totally accidental way? My understanding of how he discovered it was actually when he was a student in high school, when he was playing around with a Coolidge tube, and he first... He, okay, okay, what, what, day, hang on, hang on, what's a Coolidge tube? 
Be kind. Hewage tube is an old x-ray tube. Oh, okay. Appar- apparently, his family was pretty well-to-do. His dad was a contractor, and he became interested in this. And uh, somehow, I guess in his mind, he believed you could overcome gravity. So he bought a Coolidge tube and playing around with the Coolidge tube, it was my understanding that he noticed movement in the wires. And at first he thought it was a Coolidge tube, but then he was smart enough to relate it to the capacitor. It had something to do with the capacitor. Okay. Just for folks that aren't going to follow this, a Coolidge tube was basically like an old fashioned vacuum tube and it had wires running in it and you used very high voltage to create x-rays by, you know, putting electric current across a gap that smashed into a plate and that produced x-rays by secondary whatever. This gadget that he thought could maybe do something else turned out that he was right, except it wasn't what was going on in the tube. It was the capacitor, the electrical condenser, the, the storage device to give a huge burst of current. That was the actual culprit, or in this case, the hero, of the of the of what what he was observing and this is what led townsend brown to start studying and creating the science of electrogravitics as he was to later call it and he had tried to get a lot of the when he was after he got out of high school he tried to get other professors at different schools to notice this and to his disappointment a lot of them weren't interested gosh isn't that a familiar caltech in california and the the professors there was his first time he tried to do it and it wasn't until he got in touch with paul Field that he was able to get somebody to be interested in it and apparently Paul Beefield had done some studies similar to what Brown was doing and encouraged him to go ahead and do I the thought, research. I thought, uh, I thought Dr. Beefield was actually one of, one of Brown's uh, professors back in Ohio. He was. He was in Ohio. When he moved back from Caltech to Ohio, he got... And apparently he went back to Ohio and went to several schools and uh, when he when he got to back to Ohio at the university I don't know was it was it Denison University? I can't remember. Yeah, I which think it was Denison, yeah. Where yeah. Paul B. Field was at Paul B. Field got a, he he got him interested in what he was doing because apparently Paul B. Field had observed similar things hmm. and hence the B field Brown effect was born. Now, didn't B field also, didn't he, didn't he um, uh, go to school with Einstein? He did. He did. Hmm. He went to school with Einstein. So, so Brown had a really, Brown. Brown had the perfect mentor to take this idea and do something with it. Absolutely. But not in California. <laughs> In Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he ended up back in California. Well, you know, Caltech is, is, Caltech is a, is a bottomless pit of all kinds of other weirdness behind the scenes. So um, I'm not surprised his, his uh, professor at Caltech basically went, shh, shh, don't worry about that. It's not, that's not real. Because that's what Caltech <laughs> guys do. That's, that's their, that, yeah. you know, there's, there's a story I told last night about Richard Feynman and the so-called PAP engine. And that's a whole other show. Anyway, so so Brown get, goes leaves the bright lights of Hollywood and Caltech, goes back to his roots, back to Ohio, finds Beefield, who was a simpatico guy, who was part of Einstein's class of graduate graduates, and these two guys, Beefield and Brown, put their heads together and start doing what? They start doing experiments with the capacitors. This is probably where Townsend Brown came up with the idea of the series, or what I call the linear type capacitor, where 
you run a charge through one side and come out the other. And he also and each and 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 and, 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 and he, sorry sorry each each separation hands off the charge to the next one to the next one to the next one, and the whole thing can store a large amount of electricity. Yes, and that's the secret. That's by the way where the electrogravitics comes in. Electro from electricity, gravitics from gravity. Electro gravity control of gravity by means of electricity. Right, absolutely. He also he also had an electrokinetic generator that he patented after the British patent of three hundred three eleven, and it was American patent and. Apparently, this generator would produce a high amount of electrostatic electricity, but it was built a little bit different from the other generators as it had, I'm not real sure exactly how it was, but I think it was filled with uh, uh, insulating material along with uh, the metal to create the field. Hmm. So instead of the plates, it was kind of an amorphous mess that would hold a charge? Yes. So the charge went from the insulating materials to the conducting to the insulating conducting in a random, you know, what would you call it? Soup? Solid state soup? I I guess it'd probably be as close to what I would call a Wimhurst-type generator. Hmm. Okay. Or more likely a Holtz Wimhurst type generator because it used dielectrics and a Holtz Wimhurst generator. I have one. You have to start it with electrostatic force, but it doesn't have the metal plates in it, but it does build up a large voltage. Okay. You can get up to 350,000 volts with that. So the key that Brown found in, in Beefield was that to basically make something that would be useful, that maybe someday could lift its own weight against gravity. You needed a very, very high voltage and a material, the dielectric, the capacitor, that would hold that charge until you released it. And when you released it, you would get that jolt of motion. Yes, for sure. How far along did his experiments go? How, how much weight was he able to, to make move, not just horizontally, but vertically? Vertically, he, he said that he uh, was, abs- I think, it, above, uh, I want to say 50%, but that might not be right. But he used a ballast, a little, it's kind of like the scales where you have one weight heavier than the other to measure this. He'd have equal weights, oh. equal to the weight, and then he would, he could tell that it was producing a power, but when he turned it on, it would go up and the other weight would go down. Like an old old-fashioned balance pan scale. Absolutely. Like, like a teeter-totter, okay. So, see, what everybody wants, of course, and what our graphic for your show tonight shows is a beautiful flying car with family all in the bubble and she's steering home and all that with the groceries. He never got, or did he, to where these primitive gravitators would sustain their own weight uh, against gravity. In other words, they would float, right? I don't think he did. He may have. He was able to get the, from a movement standpoint, as a motor, he was able to get speeds like I was able to do with his. I do know that in some of the tests later on, when he was with James Frank King, at the Bonson Laboratories, they had they show it lifting up and down. I don't know just how successful they were, but apparently they were very successful in some of their experiments. And it was also there that he first did experiments in vacuums with electrogravitics to prove that it was not an ion. Ah, would not based on the atmosphere. Okay. Now, see, what I, what I want to establish, and this is very important for this, uh, you know, citizen science thing we're looking at doing with a CubeSat or two or three, because NASA has sent two of them now to relay back the InSight landing next November 
uh, deep into space, just ordinary CubeSats with solar panels, you know, scale up a bit so they can get sunlight from, from the sun at Mercury's, at Mercury, at Mars distance. But they're basically going to be used as a demonstrator that you can send CubeSats far beyond the Earth. What I want to do, I want to take as a, a simple, a Bifield Brown gravitator with as much force as you can get out of the current dielectric, which are so much better than they were back in, in Brown's day because we made huge material science progress, right? And I want to take one of those and make an engine that you can turn on and off, you know, by remote control or on an onboard computer. And this basic thing will create a thrust if it's like 50% of the weight of the engine plus the airframe and all that. That's huge in space because you don't need, with no friction and no gravity in orbit, you basically, once you turn it on, It'll go and go and go and go and go till you turn the damn thing off, right? Absolutely. That's the same principle as the ion engines that they use today in the spacecraft. Ah, but the difference is you don't have to carry a source of ion fuel with you because the gravitator only needs electricity. So in space with a CubeSat, like NASA's done and sent to Mars now tonight, you got solar panels, that's your electrical source. You got a, a, a frame, a spacecraft frame, the CubeSat, two or three or four or whatever. And in this, you put your solid state electrolytic um, you know, capacitor and you pulse high voltage through that capacitor. And if you get even 5%, let alone 50%, you can take that damn sucker and go to Pluto with no fuel. Absolutely, and uh, in, like you said, in space you don't have any, you don't have the effects of gravity, and there's there's no, since it's white, weightlessness, there's just weight. It does. It's the same equivalent value as if you had a Titan rocket on Earth mm-hmm. out in space. Mm-hmm. And like the Energizer Bunny, it'll keep going and going and going. Okay, important question. In duplicating T. Townsend Brown's electrolytic bricks, what's the best thrust-to-weight ratio you've got so far? I have not tested the new ones, but on the ones that I put together, I got like a quarter-inch movement out of the tangent when I first turned it on. Okay. after it absorbed the electricity and then I had to wait a few minutes and let it discharge. I discharged it and then I waited and tried again, but I got maybe a quarter of an inch movement out of it. Then that doesn't sound like very much, but out in space that would, if you kept pulsing it and you had a way and you didn't have the leakage like I did on the first ones that I put together, when, they could when you say leakage, you mean electrical thrust. leakage into the atmosphere? Yeah, into the atmosphere because I just uh, I didn't have them wrapped with any kind of dielectric. I just had them pressed together, held together with rubber bands. <laughs> and the problem I ran into with them too also is some of them would discharge around the dielectric and go on the other side. So I was losing some thrust there. Hmm. Okay, not good, not but, good. But all right, when, all right so so people it, so people understand this. You've got your brick on a piece of wire or a string or a rope, and it's ten, it's hanging like a pendulum. All right, and right. it the sucker weighs what three pounds or something. This the little ones. The first one I built only weighed probably maybe a pound. Okay. So a pound. It, okay. it wasn't sealed with wax or anything. So the idea so is that when that you that when you discharge the capacitor, dump the electricity to a ground, that pendulum would move. That brick would move, you say, like a quarter of an inch before it would swing back, right? Right. I was really kind of impressed that it moved that much. So if you if the way if, it's made. If you did the calculation, you know, hanging vertically and then off to the side by a quarter inch and measure the angles and all that, you could derive 
how much thrust that jolt of electricity had given it compared to how much it weighed, right? Absolutely. And you just yes. haven't been able to do that yet. But we can estimate. It's no. probably on the order of what? Yes. An ounce or two? Maybe three or four? That's that's all. It's uh, then the, uh, It'd be an ounce or two. That doesn't sound like much, but then considering that it, it's electricity going through a capacitor and it's moving it. Which you shouldn't be doing at all. Yeah. Remember, this is all violating known yeah. physics. <laughs> you know, violation, violation. This should not be happening. Absolutely not. Cannot, cannot, cannot by any physics model out there. Relativity, quantum mechanics, nothing like this should be happening. And it is. And that's the mind-boggling breakthrough because that little quarter inch, if it amounts, let's say it's an ounce, okay, to be make this even, that ounce is one sixteenth yes. of the weight of the gravitator, right? Which means the thrust yes, would be one sure. would be one sixteenth of a g, and one sixteenth of a g. Although again, it doesn't sound like anything in space. It will take you to Pluto in a few weeks, literally. Because you just keep putt-putting. Every time you spark it, there'll be a, a, a thrust of one-sixteenth of a pound. One ounce, right? And that adds right. up. It adds and adds. And there's no friction. And it adds and adds and adds and adds until you're going hundreds of thousands of miles per hour with one ounce of thrust. that's how the ion engines work in space. Except they need fuel, I mean, and this does not need fuel. All right? That's the, that's the coolest part of this, is what you can build with the best materials that money can buy. And time, you're going to wrap it so it's insulated and all that, okay? What you can build, if we can get it into space and put it in a, in a spacecraft which can be directed, can be aimed, can be controlled, which all, of course, is now off the shelf. It's all computer. It's all, you know, there are companies doing this all over the world and tossing payloads into space as CubeSats. We can put a camera in this thing. We can send it, Larry, to the moon into lunar orbit and take close-up pictures of the astonishing stuff that's there that NASA for 50-plus years has not wanted to show us. That's why I wanted you on the show to, to talk about how you do this in your garage and the entire supply chain is waiting for us to build the right gravitator to do all this and change history. amazing <laughs> <laughs> that's a phrase i think we i think i would go with yes it's amazing it's so you don't know yet how efficient you don't know the, how efficient the the new ones are but you'll know that the next week or so right i will i will know in the next few weeks i will have a chance to i had to redo some of my power supply and my cloth waltons is what i use a cloth walton multiplier and I had to go in and redo some of them and before I could do the test because it's just a, every now and then, every few years, you got to replace parts. That's just. Mm -hmm. So this is the, this is the, well, we're, we're in the next segment. We'll get to that in terms of the Brown fan jet generator, because we got some really cool yeah. picks up on the, on radio with pictures. So we'll get to that, but let's, let's stay with the gravitator because I want people to okay. really get how incredibly simple this is, how incredibly revolutionary it is at the same time. It's like you can't overstate what Beefield Brown did back in the 1920s, that the U.S. Navy then very carefully for decade after decade after decade, because he was a Navy, he was an admiral eventually, Brown, they suppressed and that's why you don't know anything about T. Townsend Brown in the, in the 21st century, because like Tesla, somebody did not want what he had figured out, what he'd created, what he'd stumbled across in a larger, wider world in an audience. He was, I think he was, uh, they were using his stuff behind his back he was showing it to him and they he was literally demonstrating it to him and they they were they were copycatting it behind his back hmm. 
Yeah, that's what Paul LaViolet says. He says there's a huge industry, a huge secret anti-gravity industry based on this physics, this technology, and some others that are related that we're not supposed to know about. In fact, some of my friends say this is the foundation of an entire secret non-shuttle, non-rocket, non-action reaction uh, technology behind the secret space program. All from T. Townsend Brown, the guy who they kept in a drawer, kept in a closet, kept... A, I mean, he had so many jobs because he, he kept getting fired. That was interesting, wasn't it? Getting fired or he would just become a consultant and he would go like two years, like he did with Bonson. He he had a contract with him and then he'd, he'd stop there and go somewhere else and do the same thing because he con- wanted to continue his work in the electrogravitics. So how difficult is it with modern materials? I mean, you're, you've now made the, the latest bricks, not the way Brown made them, but out of whole new materials. In fact, we're going to talk in some detail about that when we reach the top of the hour. But give us a hint. I mean, how much better are dielectrics now than they were back then? They are much better today than they were back then. Like, and- like some kind of number? Are we talking a hundred times? Okay, 1, we're talking ten thousand per mil better. Back oh my the god! The actual he was the ones that he had. The Empire cloth was probably two hundred per mil. Right. And the polyester that I'm using is probably it's six hundred. They were, and I'm using two inch squares. And then with the paper behind it, it's probably going to go up to about 800 per mil. And it's 10 thousandths of an inch thick. So what I've built is actually greater in, with a dielectric strength than what he had back then. Hmm. So for, for what he had, he was able to show that the gravitics worked very well. And I'm really astounded as to how well they did work from just reading his material, especially here lately. Hmm. But you can do much better, which means you can make them smaller, lighter, and use less electricity and get better thrust. In other words, we've got ourselves the making of a real space drive. Right. You know, what's astonishing to me, Larry, is that in the last decade since Brown did all this and the notes have come out and after Moore's book, that nobody has done what I want to do, which is to build one of these suckers and put it into orbit and test it in orbit. And that's where you need to test it, too. Yep, yep. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning, Larry Davenport, we're talking about T. Townsend Brown, anti-gravity, and the ability to make this stuff in your garage. In fact, later, I'm going to have him go into great detail for all the DIYers in the audience all over the world. Why don't you try making one in your garage and put it on a pendulum and uh, see what happens? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I want to talk to you in the audience around the planet tonight. I want to talk to you about the kind of meta objectives of the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight, this radio show that you're listening to right now. As you know, we have sponsored a number of important research projects through this show over the last couple, three years. We've raised money for electrogravitics, for M-Drive research. Um, We're looking very hard now at this whole 
orgone accumulator technology, and I want to use the Accutron, this inertial sensor, which I developed following the lead of Bruce De Palma many, many decades ago, to put the Accutron in an orgone situation, in the accumulator or in an orgone blanket, these multi-layered uh, concoctions that somehow seem to trap or densify the ether. And yes, ether is real. There is a physics of the ether. And the problem is that it all costs money. It all costs funds. So we've added a new wrinkle to the Other Side of Midnight website. Over on the left-hand side, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com and just look over on the left, you'll see under the uh, banners which say things like home, tonight show, there's a donate button. And there's also some donate buttons in the middle of the page if you uh, happen to get the right show. But mainly over on the left, it says donate now. Normally, I don't like asking folks for money. But money is energy. Money is the ability in this culture to do things, to accomplish things. There is a huge need and necessity for a game changer. We need to bring humanity back together to realize its commonality and not its differences. And that's in part what this show is trying to do with a variety of programs. And part of our research effort is trying to do with a variety of, of uh, projects there. So if you have some spare change, if you have more than spare change, go to that button. Go to the left-hand Donate Now button and click on it and send us what you can spare because communication in the 21st century costs. Everything costs, but communication more than anything costs because you have transmitters and internet connections and bright people and complexity of computers. Oh, my God, complexity of computers it all ultimately has to be paid for somehow. And as you know, you can also join Club 19.5. That's an easy way to support the show because then you get archives, you get seminars, you get this thing we're going to be doing in the next few weeks on how to look at these images. And um, there are ways you can look that will give you insights to what you're seeing that will not be found uh, on NBC or CBS or ABC. So again, go to the left-hand side of tonight's show page or the guest page. Click on the donate button and send us what you can spare because, believe me, every dollar helps. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question They'll be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live. And this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests. And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. 
Over and out. Over and out.